Good evening. You are listening to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Welcome to Undercurrents. My, my name is Jenny, and I'll be with you for the next half hour. I almost forgot my name there. Joining me in our virtual studio today is Armanthea Duncan, who's currently a graduate student in sociology here at the University of Massachusetts. Um, Armanthea is also an academic dean at the Academy of Hartford, Hartford Youth Scholars, and maybe she'll tell us a little bit about that um, over the next half hour. But where we're going to start is talking about um, environmental justice. Um, so Arunthia, what does this phrase mean, environmental justice? Um, so essentially what environmental justice uh, means to me is that um, there are communities uh, within our country that um, experience a disproportionate exposure to environmental toxins, right? Whether that be in the air, whether that be in the soil, whether that be in the water, right? And um, environmental justice generally speaks to the movement to try to eradicate um, those inequalities. Um, but I've always pushed back at this notion of the language and the, the, the terminology being environmental justice. Because um, when it pertains particularly to Black communities, it's actually um, something a bit more insidious. It's environmental racism. Um, it's the, 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 the uniquely um, intricate ways that Black communities find themselves disproportionately, um, regardless of um, you know what class background they might be in, um, even when controlling for um, socioeconomics, they are because of their race um, at a greater likelihood to be exposed um, to some form of. Uh, environmental toxin um, at their residential location. Yes. Okay, so you might want to, um, or you might like the opportunity to explain a little bit more fully why you think it's important to use the term environmental racism rather than environmental justice, or is this just nitpicking so, at words? Yeah, great, great point. So um, I think it's important to use the term racism versus justice because um, oftentimes in a lot of the studies um, and a lot of the literature um, that's done, that's attempting to like figure out this problem um, and, and try to come up with some type of practical solutions to the problem. When we talk about it in terms of justice, it has a certain connotation as if you know there is there has been some kind of progress you know um that has been made surrounding this issue justice typically um you know it sends a message you know to me a subliminal message that um again, that, you know, there is some kind of linear progress that has been happening as it pertains to this social dilemma. And what we, what I find um, when, you know, looking at the data that I work with um, and, 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 and going through a lot of the, the research and literature is that progress has been not only stagnant, but in black communities, actually non-existent, right? And so I think that 
justice is what we're aspiring to. I think it's what we're hoping will happen, but we haven't even scratched the surface in terms of getting close to um, any real like tangible sense of justice. And what we're actually theorizing, what we're actually problematizing and what we're actually attempting to um, create solutions for is the racism, the racism um, that again, places particular communities based on the, their racial demographic at a more or less vulnerable position just because of how they are racialized within our society. Okay, so let, let's get into that a little more. You mentioned that you had been looking at data and doing other kinds of research that kind of led you to look at things this mm -hmm. way. So tell us a little bit about what kind of data do you look at? So um, I have um, data that comes from the Office of Civil Rights, which is housed um, in uh, the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency. So um, a little background, in the 90s, uh, Bill Clinton passed an executive order 12898. And in that executive order, essentially uh, what he proclaimed is that, you know, particular demographics of people uh, based on race and based on class, uh, he found were disproportionately vulnerable to, um, you know, being targeted by industries and exposed to toxic contaminants that come from many of those manufacturing industries. And so what he did um, with his executive order was essentially a call to arms for um, federal uh, organizations that were working on environmental um, issues. And he essentially encouraged and implored them to make a more concerted effort to address those types of disparities. And, um, you know, EPA got on it, the Office of Civil Rights was created. And so I have data that is essentially um, cases that have been submitted to this office, right? This office became essentially like the point place for many communities who felt that, you know, they were experiencing environmental racism and wanted some type of intervention on behalf of the federal government. And so I have data that's essentially about 20 years um, of cases that had been submitted to this office and they were submitted under the guise of it being a violation of um, it's title six and and essentially that's just it's a it's a title in the civil rights um legislation that essentially argues that no company can receive federal funds and engage in practices of discrimination on the basis of race race sex gender you know the whole nine and so um all of these cases were submitted to this office that you know, these companies were engaging in, you know, practices that were racially discriminatory, um, violations of, you know, Title VI. And so I have all of the cases that have been scanned by a think tank um, in DC, where they had also been um, doing their own investigation of why has there been so little that has been done in terms of federal penalizing of companies 
um, or even proclamations by this office finding companies in violation of racial discrimination. And what I found in my, you know, in the data that was compiled by this think tank that I'm using for my dissertation is that, you know, in the, the span of years that was collected, there were zero cases zero absolutely yeah. no cases this office had found any company guilty of racial discrimination or had there been like any form of real like public you know redress for years oftentimes documented in certain location years and years of patterned um discrimination in terms of environmental toxic exposure and so what i'm doing um let me okay let yes. me interrupt you for a minute uh -huh. I think, um listeners would probably like to know more specifically what kinds of transgressions were mm -hmm. these because we're so, talking you're talking in specific in particular about environmental mm -hmm. impacts or impacts on the health mm -hmm. So um, it's it's a it's a multitude of different types of ways, um, and I don't pinpoint any area in, in in specifics because I'm I'm not one of those kind of hard scientists, right? Um, I'm I'm looking more so at like social implications, um, but it it runs the gamut from like you know targeting certain neighborhoods to um, put a, a, a waste dumping site um, where, you know, or targeting certain neighborhoods because the land in that neighborhood is either like so cheap or the residents that are nearby, you know, their socioeconomic marker is so low that they know they won't have the resources to be able to mount a campaign, a legal campaign to actually stop them. So essentially like, you know, these are the paths of least resistance. And so there are companies that come in and set up manufacturing that releases, you know, toxic chemicals in the air. You know, there are reports of, of contamination of water and you know the long-term effects are you know people experiencing you know cancer people experiencing nosebleeds um in areas like Alabama uh in Louisiana being met with swarms of flies um uh very like overwhelming stenches in the air that makes it difficult for them to like step outside and enjoy like you know their yards and their neighborhoods things like that Okay, so I think you, you told us a couple of key things there. Um, toxicity, toxins yeah. in the air and the water and the soil, and um, knowing, picking on neighborhoods where they know that people don't have the resources um, to, re to resist. Okay, then I interrupted you. You were in your flow talking about um, what you had found and that either very little or nothing had been done in response to these complaints. So if you can want to pick it up there. Yeah, so um, I mean, essentially, so that's what brought me to this project. Um, I had come across a theory that was actually housed in the humanities, despite me being in sociology, um, and a theory in the humanities uh, called Afro-pessimism, um, which essentially asserts that 
you know, black people in this country are in a fixed social position at the bottom of society. And that that fixed social position is a necessity in order for white supremacy to maintain itself and continue to thrive, right? And that white supremacy relied on black expendability in order for it to maintain its vitality, right? So that's that's essentially like a large watered down version of this, you know, very intricate theory. And um, I wanted to empirically test this theory um, because what I found at the height of like Black Lives Matter movement that was happening recently, um, also with the case in Flint, Michigan with the contaminated water um, and started to come to the realization that these were not new phenomenons, that these were issues that had been plaguing our society for decades, for generations. And so I'm, I also have a background as a historian, right? And so I've studied like the civil rights movement, black power movement, and I know like all of the efforts that have been made that, that, you know, all of the bloodshed, the fighting that have been done to advocate for a more egalitarian, racially egalitarian society. And yet, you know, Time Magazine had this issue where it literally had these two images juxtaposed to each other of 1968 and 2018, and they almost looked identical, right? And so, what got me to thinking is like, where is the progress? Where where has the movement been happening, right? And if we find ourselves 50 years, you know, still protesting, still rioting, you know, still having to go to such extremes in, advo in, in advocacy for racial equality, then can we continue to make the argument that racial progress has actually happened? And this theory of Afro-pessimism, uh, you know, asserts that no, we can't, that racial progress has not been this linear trajectory as many of the social sciences would lead us to believe that it has been, right? And, and in sociology, you know, a lot of our theories on race definitely have this kind of axis of progress in terms, you know, of race and, and, and when they look at it in terms of data, right? But what I argue in my uh, dissertation is that progress in terms of race has not been linear in this straight up axis. And if anything, it's been cyclical. And we find ourselves like starting at a bad point, getting to a better point, and then like facing some type of regression, some type of what I call white lash or what, what someone else, I, I borrow someone else. I'm sorry, it's not mine. Um, <laughs> someone else calls a white lash. And then we find ourselves back um, not even to the place that we originally started, but to a place that's oftentimes worse off than when we started. And so then how can we really quantify that? How can we really operationalize that as progress, right? And so, yeah, that's, that's what, yeah, go ahead. So I wonder if you could give um, an example or a couple of examples of the kind of things that people point to as progress. You were referring to sociology literature and I'm sure it's more than sociologists kind of things that are pointed to as progress and then how that gets followed by the white lash or the down cycle. 
Um, so there are many examples of it. And I know we're, we're very short, um, in time, but, um, a kind of general like overview synopsis, right, is let's look at environmental racism, right? Back in the 1980s, um, you know, one marker in a lot of environmental justice um, research of like a moment that, you know, gets kind of canonized as a part of like fundamental learning of the environmental justice movement was this study that was done, um, I want to say it was the Unitarian Church, and it was called Toxic Waste, right? Toxic Waste in America. And in that study that was done in the 1980s, they were looking at um, different types of, you know, explanatory variables that can, you know, speak to which communities are being targeted, which communities are being impacted in terms of exposure to environmental toxins, right? And they saw that racial disparities was one of those variables that was very, very high up in terms of being able to explain whether or not a neighborhood or whether or not a citizen would potentially be exposed to environmental toxins in their, li in, in, in their lifetime. Then 20 years later, they revisit that study called Toxic at 20. And what the scientists who you know, participated in the first study and came back and revisited 20 years later found that not only was race still an explanatory variable, but that it strengthened in its ability to be able to explain the likelihood of a neighborhood being um, vulnerable to toxic exposure than it was 20 years ago. So that's an example of like, you know, 20 years ago, this study was released, you know, uh, Clinton came out with this executive order, the Environmental Protection Agency opened up the Office of Civil Rights, you know, there's a, a central location where people where people can funnel their complaints to and it's seen that it would have made things a bit better, right? That, that, that if these kind of like long, you know, across the country studies were being conducted, that we would see progress, right? At least in this area of race. And what they found was that no, they, they didn't find progress. In, and in fact, things had gotten worse. So you said you were looking at this data and found that essentially nothing had been done in terms of responding to the complaints. Mm -hmm. So what was going on there? Uh, a lot of bureaucracy, you know, um, in, in, in many ways how, you know, our government will pass legislation but not have the resources, you know, to kind of truly see it executed in the way that they intend to. And then very little follow up in terms of efficacy, right? Very little, you know, punitive, you know, consequences that are connected for not following up, right? There, there, there just wasn't, you know, any entities that could hold this particular office accountable for the things that it was or was not doing in service of these people. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we should talk a little bit about the example of say education, since you're in the field of education in several ways, both as a student and an advisor um, or organizer. And 
that might be the kind of area people say like, well, has anything improved for black people in America? And people might think, well, educational opportunities have improved. So do you want to talk about like how that has improved, how it hasn't improved, or you know, maybe this up and down pattern? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I'm, I'm uh, in this educational field that I'm, I'm in um, is because ever since I was young, you know, I'm first generation, first in my family to go to college. I'll be the first in my family to receive a PhD. Um, we had always been taught that education was this great equalizer, that if you were to go and get all of the education that you could possibly, you know, get in your lifetime, that essentially all your troubles and, and all of the hurdles in life that were based on race or based on socioeconomic, you know, uh, roadblocks that you would be able to kind of overcome them. And the $200,000 I have in student loan debt begs to differ. And, you know, uh, that's hurting us, you know, and it's, 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 it's one thing to get an education, but the cost of education is continuously on the rise. You know, uh, student loan debt is literally ballooning. It's one of the top areas of collective debt that, you know, is negatively impacting us as a nation. And we, you know, and studies have shown that, you know, Black communities and marginalized communities tend to have, you know, higher amounts of student loan debt. And, you know, if you're leaving college and you are already like, you know, bogged down, right, with this overwhelming debt, how are you able to enter into the economic job market and find yourselves on an even playing field with your contemporaries if you, you, you again, are still finding yourself starting um, on that on that track, on that race, that socioeconomic race track, you know, five to 10 steps behind, you know, um, and I try my best in my capacity as Academy Dean working with Hartford U Scholars, which is a, a college access, a college readiness program to try to, you know, essentially inform and, you know, support these inner city bright, you know, competent, high excelling kids to know that there are resources out there and to, to grab as many of those resources as they possibly can. Don't pay for college. If you absolutely don't have to, going into graduate school, make sure those graduate school programs pay for your education. Like all of the information that I wish someone had given to me, I make it a point to give it to the students that I work with. And it's an attempt to, to try to address you know, the, 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 the massive gap in terms of educational equity. We can also talk about enrollment rates, you know, at some of the leading schools. They're all suffering from, you know, to, to, a, to a large extent, you know, underrepresentation of marginalized groups, you know. Um, what we saw this summer, you know, Har uh, uh, Black at Harvard, Black at Yale, Black at Cornell, like, you know, and many of the top tier programs that, again, you know, unfairly advantage certain graduates, you know, from these elite institutions versus state institutions. And you find that the, the students of color are there struggling and, and struggling to a point that many of them find themselves not being able to complete their degrees, you know, and 
still, you know, bogged down with student loan debt for not being able to do so. And then we know like how that's connected to, you know, um, credit scores and, you know, how uh, that it, it just, it, it penalizes you in multiple ways. And it's just no longer really the case that we can make the argument that education when it's 50 and $60,000 a year is this great equalizer. You know, it, it, it feels like it's this great pit hole of despair. And I find myself sometimes struggling with my students because I'm like, you know, trades make a lot of money and you don't have to pay as much for your education. You know, if you would go and get a trade and you can find yourself earning um, as, as much if not more than people with co four-year college degrees. But the, the hard part is that I know all too well that degrees give you so many other benefits than just earning potential and every child should be able to have an opportunity to 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 have access to a quality education it improves your overall life experiences not just you know making it easier for you to be able to get you know a competitive paying job so we have about four more minutes left in this discussion, and I'm wondering if you can continue to talk about, in a sense, recommendations to, I think we've been talking mostly about the academy, that's a so-called higher education, um, that's attached with these huge price tags. Yeah. Um, can you make further recommendations, or what should the community be working towards, like in departments, you know, people talk about um, recruiting a more diverse base of students and this is a big problem and you need the student diverse students to have diverse faculty or even people in non-academic positions but are professional positions what is your what are your recommendations if you were in charge of some nice pot of money to you know be able to start programs um oh that's a great question um, and I've been thinking about this a lot. You um, have. <laughs> for one, you know, just on a personal note, uh, I think we need to cancel student loan debt. And I think that we need to be lobbying. I think that we need to be, you know, in DC as educators, like, you know, stumping the ground and being more involved in activism, you know, advocating for the eradication of student loan debt. Um, I also think higher education, just as in many progressive you know what I'm saying industrial nations you know education is free it should be free here in the United States of America and you know also um, one of the things that's been like tugging at me a lot is that you know on Capitol Hill you know so many politicians you know get uh, extended you know the opportunity and the privilege to make decisions all the time for education, what should be cut, what shouldn't be cut. And many of these people have never stepped foot inside of a classroom. Many of them, you know, have no idea um, what the struggles and, 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 and can't even begin to start empathizing with, you know, uh, students, you know, on a fundamental level. And so I think that I would implore more educators to get involved in politics. Let's be at the table making some of these decisions about budgets, about, you know, implementations of plans and programs that benefit, you know, our students, the student bodies, the people that we interact with on a regular basis and that we're working to advocate for. Yes. 
Uh, well, I wish we could keep on talking and maybe we will another time. There's always another time. I want to let listeners know that our guest is Armanthea Duncan, who's currently a graduate student in sociology and also is a dean in, at the Academy of Hartford Youth Scholars. And I'm, I'm guessing that there's something about working with those um, youth scholars that gives you um, energy and hope to keep on struggling. It absolutely does. They, they are the light of my life. And I never in a million years um, envisioned that after all of the degrees I've amassed, I, I always saw myself being a professor. But working with middle schoolers has both like, you know, poured into me and challenged me in ways that I never imagined. I've, you know, taught in the, at the collegiate level, but nothing, nothing, it pales in comparison to teaching middle schoolers. They are just, they, they, they're, they're tough, they're tough, but they make me better. They make me a better educator, yes. Thank you very much, much Armanthea Duncan. Thank you.